Hello, and welcome to the Frog Bros Podcast. My name is Justin, and we are bringing a special episode to you. Nick and I recently attended the Inconvenience Tour with Kevin Smith to see Clerks 3, and uh, this is a recording of the Q&A session that we made while we were there. Said no video, said nothing about audio, so we're going to throw this up there. If you want to hear about the original concept for Clerks 3, uh, be sure to stick around and check it out.
and that became the seed off of which Jamie Silent Bob reboot was grown. But back in the day, that's how Calypso originally started. If you've never seen Jamie Silent Bob reboot, what the fuck are you doing in this room? <laughs> Sandwich store set up inside the old RST video and stuff. Now you're up to speed, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the only difference was Dante was in that beginning scene as well. Randall was also meant to be there in the Clerks 3 script, and they all got arrested. Went from that scene to, which would be in black and white, by the way, to a black and white scene in an interrogation room at the police station. Um, like an old detective movie and shit like that. The two detectives interrogating our four boys uh, were to be played by John Goodman and Kevin Pollan. They were running characters. I used them together in Red State. They were going to be running characters throughout the whole movie, kind of giving chase to Jay and Silent Bob. So there's a big interrogation scene. In it, you find out what happened between Clerks 2 and Clerks 3, all the missing information and shit. Uh, the only good joke from the whole fucking scene was, um, you know, there's a series of shots of the interrogator and the interrogating like, so there's the cop, uh, the detective, here's Dante, or Dante Randall, or here's Jay, and stuff like that. So there was one fucking good joke where John Goodman was parking at the camera with his sleeves rolled up all sweaty. He's like, you're going to talk, goddammit, before this night's over, you're going to fucking talk. And he cut the side of the bottle, and he's like. <laughs> um, and then the cops burst into the room, and pick up Dante Randall to their feet, start dragging him out. And the was like, what the fuck's going on? Like, we got to get him to hold it. On the street right now. They're like, why? They're like, because the weather's breaking. They're calling it a Frankenstorm. And you find out that it's the night of Hurricane Sandy. So, uh, for those that don't follow recent history that much, Hurricane Sandy literally did worse things to New Jersey than Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> that's not political. I grew up in New Jersey and then he bankrupted Atlantic City. I'm not here. Someone who's been waiting a 
long time to see this movie. And you can introduce Randall as the subject of this news piece. Randall, after the events of seeing Footstop destroyed Hurricane Sandy, had a nervous breakdown. So he went to the movies and he saw a trailer for Ranger Danger and the Danger Rangers. It was like coming next year. And so he left the movie theater and then went and got in line for the movie. Even though you don't have to do that anymore, you can pre-order tickets and shit. He just went and leaned on the wall. And so people would walk past and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm waiting for Ranger Danger and the Danger Rangers to open. And they're like, you asshole, that don't fucking open for a year. And he's like, I have fucking nothing better to do. And that catches on as a philosophy. And so other people start lining up behind him. They're like, I got fucking nothing better to do either. And everybody starts lining up and grows a village of about a thousand disaffected youth that line up behind Randall. And he becomes the unofficial mayor of this town of freaks. And he's the unofficial mayor because he's the oldest person there by 30 years. <laughs> So he divides the, the world into uh, neighborhoods of fandom and stuff. Well, they're all Ranger Danger fans, but they like other shit. So here's the Star Wars neighborhood, here's the fucking Marvel zombies, here are the DC kids, here are the Snyder Maniacs and shit like that. Um, we learned this as he tours Dante on a golf cart through the parking lot and shit. Dante and Randall haven't seen each other. Beginning the movie, we get the impression, like after we saw the opening, the one year later part of Dante's door to be found. Randall's being interviewed and whatnot. He's talking about how he's been in line for a year. Uh, at a certain point, he's trying to replicate the world that was destroyed. So he's rebuilt Quick Stop as a lean-to shanty building against the movie theater. And he's continuing to bend. Uh, Elias works with him all the time, um, has the entire kite conversation. Elias is also the manny to Dante's daughter. In this incarnation, Dante's daughter survives. She's a little nine-year-old girl named Leah, and she's completely deaf. But she's the world's greatest hockey goalie. Um, that plays later on in the part. She can't hear anything. We go inside her mask at a certain point while she's playing, and since she can't hear, there's no distractions whatsoever, so she can track puck like fucking crazy. And throughout the whole movie, Randall is constantly testing it. That's her uncle and shit like that. And he'll be talking to her in sign language, and then turn around and pick up a bottle and fucking whip it at her face. And she just catches it and puts it on a shelf and shit. So uh, Randall and Elias are kind of raising Leah, Dante's daughter, because Dante's nowhere to be found. Rosario, Becky's, uh, Rosario's character, Becky, also dead in that version, also killed by a drunk driver. Some people are like, why'd you fridge Becky, man? She's the best part of Clark's too, and shit. Why'd you fucking fridge Becky? Fridging is a term online that means killing off a female character. Um, it's something they do in comedy books. Uh, I did it because it was pragmatic. Uh, Rosario is one of the most in-demand actors on the planet. So if I wrote a part as big as the part she had in Clerks 2, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight talking about Clerks 3. Because I'd be waiting for her to shoot it for years because now she's a fucking Jedi. So, two fucking days. In the other version of Clark's Creek, she was in and out in one fucking scene. I'll get to that later. So. Uh, Dante, Jerry and Simon Bob um, come back out of being arrested from the opening sequence. Randall puts them to work uh, trying to uh, have them do side bets on this hockey tournament that's going to be the center of this danger day carnival. 
shootout between uh, whoever volunteers versus Martin Murdoch, the greatest NHL player. Thank you. 
is finally open. Seven o'clock is the first show. It's Thursday night. And every screen is showing Ranger Danger and the Danger Rangers. Everybody has to wear one t-shirt to get in. There's a t-shirt that says, I'm on my way to Danger Day. If you look very closely in this movie, when you go to Randall's apartment, in the background on the wall, there's a big circle logo that says, I'm on my way to Danger Day. That's the only thing left from that previous incarnation of Clerks. So I was like, we'll put it up on the wall. I'll always remember it. Shit. Nobody will know, but now you guys will know. So, <laughs>
and uh, we went to the Prudential Center, The Rock, is where the Devils play in New Jersey, and it's the night when the Devils win their fourth Stanley Cup. Um, it's a movie, so I can do whatever the fuck I want. Fire. He's tangled out of the frame by a flying 
shit. Kid hits the ground, his fucking mask falls up. He looks up all terrified, fucking Jay and Silent Bob are looking down at him, and they proceed to curb stop him to death. <laughs> and Alex Brechtick says this goes on for four minutes. <laughs> so once the kid's head is all fucking pizza sauce and shit like that, Jay and Silent Bob are like, Two teenage girls are staring at them all wide-eyed, and Simon Bob goes, shh. <laughs> the girls go fucking running, and Jay and Simon Bob look at each other, they look at the dead guy on the ground, and Jay looks at Simon Bob and he goes, I'm no Canada. <laughs> and Simon Bob nods, and they go running into the night and shit. And presumably we pick them up in moose jaws later on. Yeah. 
his, his brain was lurking in this Kevin Smith, that Kevin Smith. And I heard, what? We can cut the ending of the movie and make life easier on everybody, including us? And this could be a path to the future? Because this Kevin Smith, he didn't see the future. He saw clerks. That's it. Not past it. Had no idea what to do after it was all done. But that Kevin Smith, the one lurking in his imagination, I heard the possibility of somebody else would pay for a movie in the future. I heard that, like, maybe we get to do this again, that it wasn't a fucking fluke, that maybe this could be my wife and shit. And so, without even fucking thinking twice about it, I cut that ending, that kid stops existing, I start existing and shit. And no complaints about cutting that ending, because it made the difference. Everything I've done ever since is predicated on the ending being cut, because people know Clerks to be a funny movie that ends well, as opposed to a funny movie that ends depressing, like Clerks 3. <laughs> So I cut it and went on with my life and no regrets whatsoever, man. I live in the spoils of that kid's victory. It was one great decision to make a fucking movie because of that. Rest of my life. Here's your 
fucking integrity back. Dante gets to die. Now, if he kills Dante, he's a fucking kid. What did he know about shit, right? He's 22 years old at that point. So for him, killing Dante was just being an edge lord. It didn't mean anything. It was just like, hey man, work sucks, and then you get killed there. Men, 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 men. <laughs> means nothing to me. Shit, I'm 52. I've lived a whole ass life and shit. I've had many adventures. I'm wizened by this point. Not very, but I've learned more than that fucking kid did. So I know I can make that death mean something. I know I can bring some weight to it and shit like that. And I know that I can fucking try to go for this moment from my childhood. My father used to take me to the movies like this. This is the only reason we're here tonight. And we all got one place because when I was a kid, my old man took me to the movies every Wednesday. We used to go to the movies as family on the weekend. And then my mom had a talk with my dad where she was like, you know, you work at night, you work at the post office. You worked all night long when you come home to go to sleep. And we'd see for like a half hour and shit like when we came home from school and we back to bed and that's where start a little and my mom's like, you're missing these whole kids growing up lives. You know, like, all you do is work and sleep and shit. You gotta figure out how to spend time with the kids, each one of them. So my dad's like, all right, all right, let me see. The fat one likes movies, I'll take the fat one to the movies. <laughs> so my mom told me one day, she's like, your father's gonna come pick you up at school half day. He's gonna take you to the movies. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, what's half day? She's like, noon. I was like, I don't get out until three. She's like, yeah, but he's coming to get you, he's gonna take you to the movies. I was like, we go to the movies on Saturday. She's like, he's gonna start taking you to the movies on Wednesday, just you and him, isn't that nice? I was like, I don't know, it seems suspect. <laughs> I said, well, what am I telling the nuns? I'm gonna leave early. She goes, I went to the movies for her. I'm gonna go over to the movies And my mom, my saint's mother, is a Catholic as fucking gets. She goes, you tell the nuns that your aunt died this morning. <laughs> I was like, did she? She goes, no, just tell the nuns that. Because that's the kind of Catholic family we were. We lied to the clergy's fucking faces. <laughs> so I went to school and like noon, Sister Gloria Louise called me down to the fucking office. She goes, Oh my god, Kevin, your father's here. So pick you up, I don't know how to tell you this, but your aunt died. And I was like, <gasps> You're kidding, what? <laughs> so sudden.
didn't cry, you know, fucking up watching The Flash like I did and shit like that as an adult. But what my father fucking did was come alive when the arts were in full effect. When the movie was on, my father knew everything about that fucking movie. Suddenly he became like the IMDb before the IMDb. And there he was engaged on this fucking like primal level with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I stopped seeing my dad when I saw Don Smith, young shadow of the boy that used to go to cliffhangers and shit. You learn a lot. About motherfuckers sitting next to him in the dark watching him watch movies. I learned what was funny, shit that made me laugh, but if there was shit that made him laugh that didn't affect me, I was like, why is that? It created an independent study. Made me a smarter fucking kid because I wanted to know what he was fucking acting about. More than that, the reason that I can sit there and watch fucking the flash and cry and shit like that is because of my father. My father took me to see Raging Bull, which if you've never seen, is a boxing movie by Martin Scorsese and shit. Um, when I was a kid, every kid loved Rocky, right? Rocky's a boxing movie and shit, and fucking, oh my god, every kid used to pretend that they were Rocky after the movie. Come out of the movie, fucking punch in the air and shit like that. So the dad was like, I'm gonna take you to another boxing movie, it's called Raging Bull. And I was like, yeah! I don't know if you've ever seen Raging Bull, it ain't fucking Rocky. <laughs> it's a character study and meditation, you know, on adults and shit. And I remember my biggest complaint, you gotta remember I was 10 years old, it's ironic as fuck. I remember saying to my father, ew, it's in black and white. <laughs> so as I was watching the clip, people were getting bored by the film. At one point I looked over at my father, and my father was bawling, not bawling, blubbering, crying. Like crying, but like moving his entire fucking body. Shit. That's something that's going on in the flip. Profoundly fucking emotionally moved. And I've never seen my father cry in my entire fucking life until that point. We've been funerals. Where, where his mom was dead, and I never saw my father cry and shit. And there he is in the movie theater, breaking down, like as he watches this movie. And I've only ever seen that art hit something so fucking hard that they're going to reduce the fucking tears. I saw it years later, decades later, reflecting in the eyes of my child. And Harley was a kid. I used to drive around with her and she'd sit in the baby seat and shit. And I love playing music when I drive, so I always play games music. I love emo. Star Cross kind of songs. The more miserable they are, the happier I am to listen to. So I was listening to Endless Love and singing at the top of my lungs. I was doing the Lionel Richie and the Diana Ross parts and shit. And I look at her in the mirror and I'm curious, oh, I'm sorry. And I was like, oh my god, are you okay? And she's like, uh, I said, why are you crying? What's the matter? And she's like, the song. And I was just like, I'll turn it off. And she goes, no! And I was like, what the fuck's wrong with you? She's like,
blood that you have and you're in and out of the hospital in 32 hours, you're not even in pain all fucking time. Uh, the more anecdotal, the better, man. Like at the end of the day, it's just a story. A story that you tell for uh, to make people laugh. Shit, you can do a two-hour version of that story. Shut up, not done, not done. Not done, too quiet. You can do a two-hour version of that story, or you can do a seven-minute version of that story sit there on fucking Colbert. It can become the skeleton for an entire fucking movie, just like Rambo did, just like I did tonight. So it's the pithy heart attack. It's the heart attack that you don't really fucking think very seriously about until people start coming up to you and reminding you how lucky you are to be alive. Because this happens to me once a week. Somebody will be like, oh my god, I'm so glad you lived for your heart attack. I'm like, you're right. Imagine how I fucking feel. And they're like, my mom had your widow make her heart attack too. I was like, how is she?
awful, isn't he? I started crying right then and there and turned into a blubbering mess. Dante's heart attack is my dad's heart attack, the one you don't fucking walk away from, the one you don't make pithy jokes about, the one that fucking ends your life and you die screaming. So every night I get to see my dad at the price I pay is I watch his fucking heart attack happen again and again. And the point of all that, the point of fucking killing Dante and shit, was to make it mean something for the audience. So they would have something useful, just like Dr. Paul was like, who's that? Tell them what they need to know. So, we went through all this trouble tonight to impart three simple lessons for the audience. My gift to the audience. Like, I would love to pay the audience back for a lifetime of not having to work at quick stuff ever since I made that movie. All I've done is make pretend for a living. How best to pay back all the people who followed me throughout my entire career, man, and enable me to not have to get a real job? I can give the money back, but fuck that. I want the money, you know? So, how best to pay them back? And this is that moment, man. It's like, I got experience. You know, if that kid, this Kevin Smith kills Dante, it's nothing. If that Kevin Smith kills Dante, I can imbue it with meaning. There's three points of meaning that I hope you got. I'll give it to you now, and I'll move on to the next question. Number one, first fucking point of meaning. You just watched two people have heart attacks in this movie. So the main message of this picture was pretty pleased with sugar on it. Get your fucking heart checked. I don't care how old you are. We all eat like atrocious Americans. Get your fucking heart checked. Number two, very important lesson for me, means the world. Never let the sun go down on an argument. Dante and Randall, you know them through the art of conversation. The only reason you know them is because they talk. Uh, you don't know them from that scene in the movie where they blew up the Death Star one time. You know them from that scene where they talked about the people that blew up the fucking Death Star. All you know them from is them talking to each other, even within the movie. Lines are defined, the lives are defined by the art of conversation. Uh, the black and white world is made colorful by them talking to each other. Uh, they talk so they don't have to think about where they are in life or where they're not in life. So everything about them has been conversational. And the last conversation they ever had is the absolute worst conversation they ever had. And there's no fucking take backs. Now, you can say, well, Randall recut the movie and he talked to Dante the whole time. Sure, sure. Dante couldn't talk back. He had a tune down his fucking throat. And that's meant to represent what happens when you wait too fucking long to mend the fence. You know, when I was a kid, like most people here in their 20s, sometimes you get shitty and mad at people like, I ain't talking to that motherfucker. That motherfucker called me back. I'm never calling that fucking fool and shit like that. I'll talk to them when they call me and shit. When we were young, we had that kind of time. And we had that kind of freedom and your responsibility. But most people in this room, I suspect, are closer to my age now, 52. And when you do shit like that in your 50s, I ain't talking to that motherfucker, man. You can talk to me. You run the risk of never talking to that motherfucker again. I know where I'm asking. So, I don't care how righteous you feel. I don't care uh, how correct you are. Never let the sun go down on an argument if you really give a fuck about that person. If the argument is how the person is like, I'm going to kill children, then have the argument. Continue having the argument. Maybe notify the police or shit. Some shit they've been carrying uh, since childhood. Carrying my hurting since childhood. Shit. Of fostering a dream of one day they're gonna get to. I'm gonna do this thing. I think I'm meant to do this thing. I think it'd be amazing if I did it. I think I would fucking do it, man. I'm gonna 
get to that. That's their dreams, the thing they're always meant to do. But sometimes you don't get to it right away. And sometimes life gets in the way. And life is fucking sweet and no complaints. Sometimes you fall in love, sometimes you have kids, sometimes you get a cooler job, sometimes you have no dream but you can manifest or something like that. But we always keep this shit alive and carry it around so that we're go and unpack it when we're lonely, when we're sad, when we need to think about the future in a hopeful way, not a fucking depressing way and shit. Is there for us at all times, and we know we're gonna get to it. I'm gonna do that fucking thing. Before I leave this world, I'm gonna do that fucking thing. I'm just having that time. Here, I'll give you an example that comes straight from my own life. Uh, when Harley was born, we lived in a house in Oceanport, New Jersey, and that house had a flat. You were in Oceanport, New Jersey? <laughs> So nothing pitched, just fucking flat. And we had these two dogs, we were big fans of the X-Files, so we named them Scully and Mulder. Mulder was very strong and a champion dog better. So Mulder found a berm in the backyard that allowed him to jump up on the fucking roof. So periodically we'd be out and we'd drive home, pull into the driveway, and fucking Mulder would be sitting on the roof looking down at us on all the nerving and shit. And the neighbors would be like, you know your fucking dog's on the roof? I was like, yeah, I can fucking see it. So I always told Jennifer, I was like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna write a book about this. I'm writing a kid's book about this, and it's called The Woof on the Roof. And I had plot points and stuff. I remember there were neighbors that were mad about the roof, and they came and they were holding signs and a bunch of fucking parents. And it was, uh, the group was narrow. Neighbors against roof riding wolves and shit. And there was the narrator was like, they weren't bad people, they were just narrow-minded. See, I can remember lines from that. It's something I still dream about, and I've accomplished a lot of dumbass dreams. A lot of fucking shit I've been able to make come true. That shit, I still foster and think about all the time. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get to it. I'm telling Jen that I've been getting to it for a long time. My daughter is now 23 years old. I've never gotten to it, but I'm gonna get to it one day and shit. So I know that everybody in this room has shit exactly like that. So we went through all this trouble, asked Lonnie's good for a bunch of money and shit, and asked you to overpay to come and see this movie tonight with me. Uh, just to impart this very simple suggestion, man. If you are, like me, indeed, somebody who has something that you want to accomplish in this best of all possible world before you leave it, hurry the fuck up, Did you go through the depression? Yes. I, had, I was diagnosed with 
like I remember the nurse came in and she was like, um, it's very important that you sleep on your back. You know, I have leans on me and stuff like that. But she's like, you know, in order to get to your heart, they go through your groin, they go through your femoral artery. She's like, so that stitch right there, if you roll around and pop it, you run the risk of bleeding out because that's your femoral. So that's the thing you have to check on the most tonight. You got to lay on your back and don't roll around. It's like, okay. And then she left, the nurse. And as soon as she left, you know, I was trying to go to sleep. So I was like, all right, get up. And I fucking rolled over because I sleep face down like in a porch. My kid got up like a fucking shot, took off out of the room. And I was like, what the fuck is that all about? She comes back with the nurse, and the nurse is like, I told you to lay on your back.
told me this fucking story that I was like, he was like, uh, they tried to kill me 167 times. I was like, what do you mean? Like 167 times in my life, they shelled our head. Just fucking blow me up.
laughed so much that I waited three fucking years to come back and do it. And I was like, I'm protesting this movie. I hear it's filthy. And, 
and I'm a good Catholic, and we're all supposed to be out here. I think this is a weak turnout. I heard 5,000 was like 15, man, but this movie's got to be stopped. It's Kevin Smith, who's not to be believed and shit. And she's like, uh-huh. She's like, what's your name? And I was like, my name? Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson's sitting there going, our father, or whatever. So later on that night, man, fucking went home and shit, and uh, they aired it on the fucking news. You can find the news piece, it's actually on my YouTube channel and shit. And my mom called me up, like, out of the fucking blue, because I didn't think to tell her, like, oh, mom, you know what happened? We were all just giggling, having a good time about it, and fucking went back, called people, friends, and shit like that. But then when the news came on, I didn't think they were running, because I thought they fucking knew the, knew the whole time she could clearly tell it was me and stuff, and I just kept denying, like I was fucking Peter denying Christ and shit. And the news report comes up, and fucking, I was Chiron as Brian Johnson. And my mother calls me up, she goes, oh my god, Tiger, there's a boy on TV who looks like you, but has Brian Johnson's name. And I was like, oh, that was me. She was like, you protested your own movie? I said, yeah, that didn't quite work out, but I got on TV for it, I guess, and shit. So, um, Dogma was owned by Miramax, and then Miramax uh, was owned by Disney, and Disney was like, you get rid of this movie. And so, uh, the people that own Miramax, punch your assholes, I gotta say the names, Harvey and Bob Weinstein, well, I know, I know, bought the movie personally. So my, my Dogma is personally owned by Harvey and Weinstein. So for years, I was like, people like, get it back. And I was like, how? Nah. like, buy it back. And I was like, I ain't giving that fucking fool money and shit. Then somebody pointed out, he don't get to keep the money anymore. It goes right to his victim. So I was like, ooh, shit. Maybe there's a play here. Maybe I can So I put together, you know, a bunch of money and shit. I was able to scrap some loot together and shit and made an offer of $250,000. It's an old movie at this point and shit. So, uh, you know, I wrote a deeply sincere letter to a convicted rapist and asked him to give me my movie back. I was like, I know you've made hundreds of movies. I've only made, at that point, I think it was 14. Um, and this is one of them, and this is about my Catholicism. This is my father's life is wrapped up in this movie and stuff. So, you know, please sell it back to me and shit. I didn't talk to him personally. I wrote the letter. His lawyer got back to us, and his lawyer was like, no, pass. So I was like, okay. And I, sent another letter and I made the offer double. Made it 500,000 bucks. Thought that would move the needle. Got a response back? No. So at that point, I'm kind of fucked, man. Like, I pulled together everything I could. I'm not Scrooge McDuck with a safe full of fucking money and I can't dive into coins and be like, Dogma. So I called my rich friends, put together a fucking consortium of people who could fucking put up some real loot and then wrote back and said, I'm ready to offer a million dollars for Dogma and was told no. So I think he's holding on to it for like five million. The thing that really sickens me about all of this is, you know, I was like, ooh, maybe I can get my movie back. And I've been able to do that. But in the process, I, I gave that man pleasure because that's all he ever liked in life was to be that movie guy 
that can make and break decisions, the deal monger and shit like that. And he hasn't been able to do that in years. He's been locked up in prison and shit like that. But me fucking asking to buy Dogma back gave him the fucking hustle again. For one brief shiny moment, he was like, yeah, this is who I'm meant to be. And that fucking sickens me. So. I did make God a woman. Thank you. Um, I, I forgot about that. You're right. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's kind of fucking shitty, something that I kind of fucking swallow. Hopefully one day he'll die and maybe I can get it back. And so I put that together, and I forced my life review to start. 
because those odds, I'm not a mathematician, but 80, 20, 20% 20 chance of living, those are pretty low. So it's like, I might as well start the movie of my life. You know, that's what happens when you die, right? Your life rushes before your eyes. So I forced the life from you to start. I started thinking about my entire existence and shit. I thought about like my parents meeting and fucking having three kids and not knowing what to do with them and figuring it out along the way. And what a great job they did. Because me and my brother and sister are fairly well adjusted and shit. Every amount of time, all found happiness and whatnot, which I know in turn made my parents happy. My old man asked him at one point, like, what do you dream about, Dad? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, when you were a kid, like me, like I dreamed about making movies, what did you dream about? And he's like, I dreamed about getting married and having kids. So his dreams came true fucking early on. And I was like, wow, good for them. And they didn't have a book, they didn't have a manual, you know, they didn't know how to do it. And yet they figured it all out. And I thought about my brother and sister, how amazing they were, supportive, both older than me, one's five years older, one's four years older, to the day. I was born on my brother's birthday. What a terrible fucking gift I was and shit. Congratulations, your son is gonna steal all the attention for the rest of your fucking life. But still, he was always cool about it. My first audience member. My brother laughs, he makes you feel like you're fucking funny. He's been doing that to me my whole fucking life. Made me think I was, I could do something. My sister, she was the one that taught me about writing. She didn't teach me. She, I was under, under a bed trying to fucking find shit to use against her. My parents, I was six years old and shit. And I found a composition notebook. I opened it up. And there's a drawing of her and her friends around the cellar door. It said, The Secret of the Cellar Door. And she found me in the room. She said, What are you doing? And I said, What is this? And she goes, It's a book I'm writing about my friends and me who go on an adventure. And I was like, You can't just write a book. You have to ask the government. <laughs> and she was like, Why do you think that? I was like, Because when we go get books at a library, there's an eagle on the card, man. Like, you gotta ask somebody. She goes, no, you know. She goes, Kevin, you never have to ask anybody permission to do something creative. You want to write? Just write. The books at the library, yes, those are books and stuff, but the government doesn't regulate that. That's just like what I'm doing. It just has a better cover. You don't have to wait for anybody to tell you to write. Just write. A very important lesson. That's why we're here tonight, shit. So I thought about my family. I thought about how lucky I was that I was surrounded by those fucking fools. They made me who I am today. Then I thought about my friends. All the people that fucking shape the rest of my existence. Family is people you're stuck with. Your friends, that's a choice. And I thought about all the choices that I made and I was happy with every single one. God, I've got great fucking friends, man. They helped me do everything I wanted to accomplish. The world is a fucking crab bucket, man. And when you try to ascend, a thousand legs are ready to pull you right back down because misery loves company. And nobody wants to see you go because it's a reminder that they could have done the same fucking thing. If the world is full of why, you tell the world you want to do something, you'll be slapped across the face with the big floppy dick of why. <laughs> like, hey man, I think I want to do something. I think I want to step outside my box and do this thing. I've never done it before, but I've seen other people do it, so I think I'm going to try it. You'll just get hit with why. Why do you think you can do that? Why are you saying this shit? Why are you going this way all of a sudden? Why do you feel this way and I don't? Why are you being this way? The world is fucking suspect, man. You want to get something done? You don't surround yourself with why people. You surround yourself with why not people. So you're like, I'm going to do a thing. And they're like, why not? That sounds fun. Why not? I was just going to jerk off. Let's do that instead. <laughs> you build a coalition of why not and get fucking things done. And all my friends were why not people, man. I got so much fucking done with them. Thought about my wife. Had to, right? We're fucking married for 20 years. She was the gateway to my child. I thought about the fact that, like, I got to have a family. Like my parents, man. I saw it modeled for me, and then I got to do it as well. And despite the fact that all my fucking professional dreams came true, my personal dreams came true as well. And just like my father, like I was made whole by having a wife and a kid myself, man. 
And like I realized that was the real dream and stuff. I thought about like what had happened with my career. I thought about all the movies I've made, even fucking like, you know, the ones that didn't work out and shit like that. And I was like, you know what? It'll get no better than this. Like at the end of the day, like fucking what is it? Just more of the same repetition. Some of the movies will be better than others, but like you lived a dream life. Are you gonna hold on to this just because you don't wanna leave? I used to be scared to death, man, but in that moment, I came to clarity, some kind of clarity, where I was like, wait a second, this ain't bad. This is natural. All life I've been scared of this, but there's nothing different about this than me graduating high school. When I graduated high school, I didn't know what was next, but it's like you can't fucking stay. As fun as it is, you gotta go. It's a very natural part of existence. And suddenly for the first time, I was like, you know what? I'm okay dying. Like, it really wouldn't bother me. In fact, I got a little excited about it, because I was like, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do anything anymore. Like, I don't have to make more movies where people are like, you saw. I don't have to figure out how to pay the bills. I'm like, I'm about to be fucking free, man. So I laid down on the table, and I was just like, this is great. Like, this is fantastic, man. I'm at utter fucking peace. Like, it, it, it fucking, if it all ends tonight, I'm okay. And then I had this one fucking thought that snapped me out of it. If I die tonight, Yoga Hosers is the last movie I ever made. And I was like, you better fucking save me, man! So while I was lying there, I'll be honest with you, I had no regrets. And I was like, if it all ends, it ends. And I'm okay with that. I was like, you can't be the last guy at the party who won't leave the house. Like, hey man, you got any more fucking beer? Like, no, just go. Push back from the table, say thank you, and fucking go home, wherever that home is. And I was ready for it, but it didn't happen. And so after the doctor saved me, I was like, fuck, I gotta keep going and shit. So ever since then, it's not been like, ooh, what did I want to do that I never did? It's just, I better hurry up with all the things that I want to do. That's why I've been on like a fucking achievement or a run ever since the heart attack, because I'm like, I know I'm living on borrowed time. I've seen the end and shit. And I tell my wife that all the time. It's like, I'm living on borrowed time. She's like, oh, that's so macabre. Don't say that. I was like, hey, you're living on borrowed time too. I'm just painfully aware of it. You should act accordingly. And so I think everyone should conduct themselves that way, right? I mean, it's very Buddhist. You know, at any moment, you could fucking you know, be prepared for your death at every moment. Sometimes we don't think like that because it's fun to think about living, not dying, but you know, but having been there. I'm okay with it. I don't want to die. I'm not like, hey man, I'm emo as fuck. Dead, dead, man, man, man. No, not at all. But when it comes, I'm fucking ready for it, man. I'm ready for it. That being said, amazing things have happened to me since I've stayed alive. Like, I got to make two of my fucking favorite movies, Jay and Bob reboot, fucking Clerks 3. Um, I've had so many fucking adventures and shit ever since then. And they still continue to happen, even up until like today and stuff. So, no regrets. I, I don't have anything where I was sitting there going, okay, now I'm finally gonna do this shit. I happen to report that I would, would have been okay to go, but I'm okay to stay as well, as long as people still are into my bullshit and whatnot. Yeah, well, you do the voice. I 
which my father wrote means something because it's anything anyone here knows is that after someone passes, you just miss those extra memories that you could have had. And so written word is beautiful because after the fact, you don't realize how much it means. Yeah, I'm a big believer in giving their flowers while they're above ground, not when they go underneath each Exactly. Show. So I'm the kind of person that, like, I'm irritated. You ask anybody who knows me, they'll tell you, like, oh, Kevin is so overbearing because, like, I'm always making sure that everybody fucking knows exactly how I feel at any given moment, just in case it all fucking stops. I tend to give flowers kind of left and right, and to some people, it stops carrying meaning because I do it so often until it stops, and then they fucking miss it like crazy and shit. But I, I believe in making sure everybody knows how fucking appreciated they are and how slobberingly grateful I am for everything they do to assist me on my journey. Because that's the thing, it's like, it's just like Randall, they put out the movie. Everyone's like, this is my life, and he's like, it's my life. I think of it as my life, and everybody's in it and shit, but that's not the case. Everybody's on their own fucking journey, they're being gracious enough to lend me their time. It's taken me 20, 25, almost 30 years to figure that out. That like, what y'all are doing is going, I know I'm gonna die one day. But I'm choosing to spend some fucking time with you, so you better fucking make it worth it. And hopefully I get to make it worth it each and every fucking time. Even tonight after I make a sad movie about old men crying in convenience stores. Exactly that. It's just that everyone is crying in their own selves. And maybe not in the convenience store, but we're all doing it. So Thank you so you. much, Kevin. It's a fucking world. Thank you. Oh, how did I come up with the title, Clark? 
sushi is what an asshole I am. I'm sorry, I don't let that reflect on all adults. Most adults, well, they're worse than me, but still. <laughs> Who's 